The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. We are beginning a study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, last week we kind of introduced it by looking at Acts 17, which is Paul and his missionary journey and the birth of this church. Today we're going to begin to actually look at the book, at least two verses of it, all right, just to get started. Now, G.K. Beale, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, begins this way. He says, In order to understand any biblical book or ancient writing, one must discover as much as possible about the situation addressed in the historical context. Who wrote the work? To whom was it written? Where and when was it written? Why was it written? And for what occasion was it written? Answers to these questions are difficult to discover for some biblical books, but when they are available, they generally provide crucial clues to solving interpretive problems. Uh, that is, I agree with that. That is so important that we just want to dig into this and find out as much as we can about it so we understand more of the conversation that's going on here. So let's begin with a little bit of history. On their second missionary journey, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they travel through the Phrygian and Galatian territories, but the Holy Spirit, if you remember, prevented them from continuing in the province of Asia. During the night, at Troas, Paul has this vision. This Macedonian man is calling to him. We see that in Acts 16.9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. That's quite a vision, isn't it? And he's like, uh, it wasn't my plan. But, you know, Paul so immediately changed plans and headed into Macedonia at once. The journey into Macedonia would be the first missionary effort into Europe. Paul and his missionary team, they founded a Christian community in Philippi. And after being beaten and imprisoned, when they finally got out, they flee the city and they make their way to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is an important seaport and a capital city. It's a Roman province of Macedonia. It's located on the Ignatian Way, the main road from Rome to the Eastern Empire. The city was within viewing distance of Mount Olympus the home of the Greek gods, and therefore home to many pagan temples. Preaching in the Jewish synagogue for three successive Sabbaths, Paul founds a church in Thessalonica that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. Before again, he faces opposition and is run out of town. Now, Acts 17.2 says, On three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scripture. And I said last week, I don't think he was only there for three weeks. All right, it doesn't mean that after three weeks that he had to leave. I think he ministered in the temple or in the, the synagogue there for three weeks and then maybe moved elsewhere and began to teach. It, I think it's just simply meaning he was in that synagogue for three weeks. And three weeks, as I said last week, doesn't necessarily mean that that's it. They could use three as an expanded number. <clears throat> but in First Thessalonians... Paul repeatedly refers to things which the Thessalonians already knew. All right? More than ten times in 1 Thessalonians, we find some reference 
to recalling what they already knew. In other words, I'm, I'm reminding you what you already know. So to me, he must have just been there a good deal of time to teach the doctrine that he taught them. I think that requires more than... Th- Being a teacher, at least today, I think that requires a lot more than three weeks. Okay? Now, the leaders of the local synagogue, they became jealous of Paul's success among the Jews, and they organized a riot, forcing Paul and his team to leave the city much sooner than they would have liked to. Because these converts, these are brand new converts, all right? So Paul continues his missionary journey through Greece, first going to Berea. Okay, so Paul, they're in Thessalonica here on the coast. When they leave there, Paul goes over to Berea. That's about 50 miles to the west there, all right? But he was soon driven from Berea. So what he does is he leaves Silas and Timothy there to work with the new Christian community. I don't know why he didn't do that in Thessalonica, but he didn't. He leaves them there, and he heads off, okay? He travels down here all the way down to Athens, which is about 200 miles to the south. Now, he's not driving his car. He's not taking a plane. 200 miles is a long trip either on foot or horseback or boat. Some of this is by ship. So, but it's just a long trip, all right? But when he gets down here, he sends word back. So someone has to travel back up there to Berea. He sends word back for Silas and Timothy to meet him in Athens. So then Silas and Timothy make the trip, the 200-mile trip, back to Athens, When Silas and Timothy join him, now I want you to see this because I want you to just comprehend the traveling that's going on here and what's really happening. When Silas and Timothy join him in Athens, you know what he does? He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. I'm like, couldn't you just send him a text, say, go from Berea, go over to Thessalonica. It's 50 miles. I mean, he travels 200 miles and Paul says, okay, here's what I want you to do. And I would have been like, uh, couldn't you have sent a letter or something? You know, that's a long trip. Now I got to go 200 miles back to get to Thessalonica. He sent, Timoth- he sent him back there to continue to teach the new believers because he was concerned about that church. I mean, he's there for a short time. These people are coming to Christ. The church has started, then he leaves. And they're kind of like, okay, what do we do now? Well, Paul and Silas continue to Corinth, over here, where Timothy then rejoins them. So now Timothy leaves, he comes down to Corinth, and Timothy comes down to tell them what's happening in Thessalonica. He says, these Christians are bravely enduring the persecution that they're under right now. So Timothy's message from Thessalonica that leads Paul to write this letter to the Thessalonians. Paul most likely wrote this first letter to them around 50 to 51 A.D. After the news of their suffering that Timothy brought, Paul became even more concerned about the community, so he writes this letter to commend them, to encourage them. So Paul sent Timothy back now with the letter, and so Timothy makes the trip all the way back again to Thessalonica to share with them the letter that Paul had written. And then 2 Thessalonians is written just a few months later. All right, so we got all that. Let's talk for a minute about the city of Thessalonica. Over 200 people. Okay, that's a big city. It's a cosmopolitan cosmopolitan metropolis similar to Corinth. 
If you know anything about Corinth, you know, okay, it's a typical city filled with sin, filled with prostitutes. There's a lot going on there. It's inhabited by peoples from really all over the known world at that time. There were barbaric, dramatic peoples from the north who brought with them their pagan religion and culture. There were Greeks there from Achaia and to the south from the islands of the Aegean Sea bringing their refinement and their philosophy. There were Romans from the west who were mostly retired soldiers, they say, and they brought with them their wealth and their political power. And then there were Jews who came in large numbers from the east. Eventually, one-third of the population was Jewish. And the Jews brought with them their ethical, monolistic faith and their national prejudice. Of course, all right? So the church seems to have been comprised of mostly Gentiles. Now, that's important. And I think evidence of this is Paul, in First and Second Thessalonians, he doesn't quote Scripture from the Tanakh. There's allusions there, I believe, and I'll show you one in a minute, but he doesn't quote Scripture. Now, if you remember from last week, when he went into the, te- into the synagogue, he was using the Scriptures to prove that Yeshua was the Christ. Look at here's what the Tanakh says about Yeshua. It says he's the Christ. Look at Christ's life. He was proving that, but now he's in a different situation. Now, the church is formed. Most of them are Gentiles, so there's not a lot of reason to quote the Tanakh. All right? So let's keep that in mind. This town, they say, was filled with business, businessmen, with travelers, with traders. It was filled with sailors. That tells you a little bit about it. It was a booming place. And a recently excavated Roman forum unearthed a 400-seat indoor theater. That's, in, that's impressive at that time. 400-seat indoor theater. A coin mint, a bath complex, about 20 shops, and storage rooms likely used for commerce. Now, the pagan cults of Dionysius, who was the god of wine, and the emperor, the pagan worship of the emperor, Augustus and Julius Caesar, were very popular in the city. I've read other reports from people who say that it was just a really corrupt place. I I don't know the truth of this because I couldn't find a backup for it anywhere, somebody else saying it, but someone said... That in Corinth, they didn't, I mean, in Thessalonica, they didn't put windows in their houses because the corruption outside was so bad that they didn't even want to know what was going on. So you just had a door to go in and out. Everything else was closed off. That's how bad they say the city was. Now, like I said, that was one person said that. I searched and searched and couldn't find anybody to back that up. So I don't know if it's true or not. Just throwing it out to you. I guess it was a corrupt place. I believe that because there was people there. Okay, so we know it was corrupt. All right, let's talk for just a second about the date. The date for the writing of the Thessalonian letters is probably one of the most certain dates we have involving Paul's letters. Because it's recorded why Paul was in Corinth, he was arrested and brought before Galileo, the proconsul of Achaia. So that helps us date this. And most commentators date 1st and 2nd Thessalonians 50 to 51 AD. I think it's Paul's second letter. I think Galatians he wrote to them first dealing with the Jerusalem Council and stuff. And then after that, he wrote this letter. So it's one of his earliest letters. What do we know about the author? Well, scholars agree that Paul wrote it. All right? Now, there are modern critics. They have doubted Paul's authorship. They doubt the authenticity of 1 Corinthians. But their conclusions have not convinced anybody. Okay? There's always going to be liberals questioning, doubting everything. I mean, most scholarship is settled. Paul wrote this. They, they're very content of when he wrote it. And 
if, if there's more debate and discussion, it's on the why. Why did he write it? Well, no one seriously disputes that Paul was worried about the welfare of the readers. You know Paul, you understand, hey, you know, he left these people early. He's concerned about what's going to happen with them, their welfare, their faith. How are they going to grow? So he wrote basically to encourage the new converts. It is a letter of exhortation to a people who are already living holy lives to excel even more. It's a letter that commends them. Now, in my opinion, the largest theological contribution of First and Second Thessalonians is what they have to say about eschatology. Over a quarter of First Thessalonians and nearly half of Second Thessalonians deals with the problems and issues regarding the parasy of Christ. And it's obvious that the Lord's return was prominent in Paul's mind from the beginning to the end of 1 Thessalonians. This subject is found at the close of every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Okay, he just, he's talking a lot about this, okay? Now, I think that the key to Paul's strategy here, writing to them and the ability of this church to endure the pressures they face. He's writing to a church that's undergoing great pressure, so he's trying to encourage them. He's in trying to give them more knowledge of the Word of God. Because that's Paul's solution. Okay, you want to live a good Christian life? Get to know the Word of God. All right, that, that's just the bottom line of Paul. And it should be the bottom line of all of us. In the short time he's with them, he taught this congregation a great deal of Bible doctrine. We'll see that as we go through. They knew a lot, okay? And again, they are very, very young Christians. Now, to say that, I want you to understand, the Thessalonian church wasn't perfect. We got that, right? Because there was people in it, so it's not perfect. No church is perfect. But it's the only church in the New Testament of which Paul speaks as a positive example to the other churches. Look what he says in 1 Thessalonians 1.7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Again, this church is very young. They're brand new converts. It's not even a year old by the time he writes this and he says, you're an example. I think that's impressive. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, basically is a standard letter form in the first century. But Paul makes it uniquely Christian by substituting grace for the similar sounding Greek word greetings. If this was a Greek letter, they would say greetings. He says grace. And then verses 2 through 10 form one long thanksgiving prayer to God for the Thessalonian believers. All right, let's look at the text. He starts, the letter begins by naming the missionary team that's writing the letter. Whenever the team is mentioned, Paul is always named first. Paul, we know about Paul. He's formerly Saul of Tarsus. He's first called Paul in Acts 13.9. It probably, I would think that most of the Jews from the diaspora had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. Now, I know we're very familiar with Paul. He wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. So that's, if you know your New Testament, you know that's about half the New Testament. Okay? He wrote a lot. All right? And then we have Silvanus, uh, the Roman equivalent of Silas. That's his Jewish name. He was a Jewish Christian. He was a leading member of the church in Jerusalem. And Paul sent him with Barnabas to the church in Antioch with the letter welcoming the Gentile converts after the council of Jerusalem. 
He's like Paul in the fact that he's a Roman citizen. He's the co-sender in both of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And he served as Peter's amanuensis, writing down Peter's words in 1 Peter 1 to the church. Then we have Timothy. We're probably more familiar with him. He's a trusted companion of Paul, born in Lystra in Asia Minor. He's the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek father. And because he had a Jewish mother, that makes him a Jew. He's a member of Paul's second missionary journey, who helped found Christian communities in Macedonia and Greece. He's also a companion in Paul's third missionary journey. He's the co-sender for six of Paul's letters. Paul sent him as a representative to deliver letters to communities and to help settle disputes. Paul wrote two letters personally to Timothy when he was serving as the pastor in Ephesus. So he's there as pastor, and Paul wrote some letters to Timothy just to encourage him and help him there. But I think the greatest thing that Paul says about Timothy is found in 1 Corinthians 4.16. He's writing to Corinthians, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now if you know Paul, you know the Bible, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So he's only asking them to follow him because he's following Christ. He's an example for them. And then he says this, be imitators of me. That's why I'm sending Timothy. What? I want you to imitate me, so here's Timothy. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways. You look at Timothy, you're going to be reminded of my ways. As I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul says, I want you to imitate me. Now here's Timothy. So Timothy was a reproduction of Paul. Paul couldn't be there, so he sends Timothy and he says, he's just like me. Timothy is a model of what we all should be. We are called to pattern our lives after Christ. That's what Paul's doing. Timothy's doing the same thing. They're patterning their lives after Yeshua. That's our calling. So I just don't think you could say anything better about Timothy than, you know, hey, be imitators of me, here he is. Just watch him, you'll see me. That's pretty cool. All right, in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, <clears throat> Do you notice anything that's missing from Paul's greeting to this church here that's present in most all his greetings? Let me show you one. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 2. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Yeshua and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Do you notice anything missing from the Thessalonian letter that's present in the one at Corinth here? It's also present in the church of Rome, Galatia, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae. You see the difference? Anybody see it? What is it? Okay. He's an apostle here. He doesn't announce his apostolic authority in the greeting to the Thessalonians. Why is that? He does it in Galatians. Paul announced that he wrote, when he writes the Galatians, as an apostle of Christ, and he vigorously defends his claim to apostolic authority writing to the Galatians. If you read the letter to Galatians, you probably understand that. Okay, they were messed up. He also announced his apostolic role in the greetings to most of his letters. But apparently, in Macedonia, his apostleship is never questioned. Because he writes two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, to the Macedonian churches there. He writes to Philippi, which is in Macedonia, and doesn't mention his apostleship there either. So in Philemon, he doesn't bring it up either. That's a personal letter. But every other place, he's bringing that up. So obviously, in Macedonia, they had no problem with this. Okay? And it's, these, these letters are 
Philip, the letter to the Philippians and the Thessalonians are, are very similar in the sense they're majorly thank you letters. You know, Philippians is thank you for the contributions. And Thessalonians is thank you for, you know, serving God, living for God. And he says, so he's writing to the church. Now, the etymology of the Greek word here, the Greek word is ekklesia. It literally means called out once. But it was widely used to refer to various assemblies of people, both religious and secular. Now, the word ekklesia, I really think, has to be understood against the background of the Greek Septuagint, where the word repeatedly refers to the gathered congregation of Israel. And in light of that, I think he's telling the Thessalonians that you are part of the true Israelite congregation of God's people who had been established by Messiah in his latter-day work. Now, in the New Testament, it has special reference to the one body of Christ that began at Pentecost, consisting of born-again Jews and Gentiles. Now, in the New Testament, ecclesia, church, can be used to describe all Christians everywhere, okay? The universal church of God, or to a local congregation. Usually, he addresses the city that he's writing to. Now, with that in mind, let me deal with a question that I got last week. Someone wrote me and asked me this question. What promises of God are for us now? That's a great question. And it's one that we all should really want to know the answer to, right? And if asked this by most believers, what would they say? What promises of God are for us now? All of them, right? You ever heard the little thing, every promise in the book is mine? You ever heard that? Yeah, okay. (laughs) And people think that because they don't understand hermeneutics and they don't understand audience relevance. All right, that's important. You ask some of these Christians that you know, tell me about hermeneutics. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, okay? And it's sad that the church doesn't even understand this. And let me give you an example here, okay? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. How many times have you heard believers claiming this promise? I've seen it on shirts, every homeschool graduation I go to, the parents are up and they're claiming this verse over their kids. It's a comforting verse, don't you think? Well, maybe if it was on a fortune cookie, okay, but it's not. It's, a book, it's from the book of Jeremiah and needs to be understood in context. Remember when you're dealing with Scripture, context is king. And if you just read the previous verse, This is a problem. We get a verse and we mark it out. Look at that verse. We go to that one verse and we read it and we pull it off the page. It's not a fortune cookie. There's verses surrounding it and there's a context to it. And this verse especially, all you have to do is back up one verse. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Now the you here is the same you of the next verse, okay? I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. So God said, I'm bringing you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is written around the 6th century B.C. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people have been taken captive into Babylon. So Yahweh is assuring the Babylonian exiles, they've been exiled out of Judah, that His long-term plan for them is good. 
Okay? He has plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give the exiles of Judah a future and a hope. And these promises were going to take place within 70 years. Okay? When the 70 years are complete, he's going to bring them back into the land. This verse is easy to understand if you just keep it in context. All right? Paul is writing this letter we're looking at, particularly to the church that's located in Thessalonica. He is not writing this to us. We're reading somebody else's mail. Okay? That happened this morning. I got the mail out of the mailbox, came in here, opened it up. It was a bill, and I was like, what the heck? How's that bill so high? And I looked, and it's not for us. It's for our neighbors. <laughs> I put it back in the envelope and took it over to the neighbors. But it's not, he's not writing to us. So how do we know, the question here, how do we know what applies to us and what does not? I mean, that's an extremely important question, people. I said earlier that the New Testament church can be used to describe all Christians everywhere, the universal church, or a local congregation that's usually designated by the city they live. Every believer is part of the universal church. So in reading a letter to a local church, we need to at, seek to understand what is specific to this local assembly and what is applicable to the church universal. In other words, we're part of the church, so if it's church universal... It's, it's for us. For an example, let's look at Philippians 2.19. Paul writing to the Philippians says, I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Now, is this specific to a local assembly or is it applicable to us? It's not a trick question. Listen. Timothy, anybody you looking forward to Timothy? Seeing him soon? Yes, check, and do, check the door. He's coming soon, all right? We're not expecting, you know, we read this and we're like, well, that's not us, because well, how do we, we know Timothy's dead, right? This is 2,000 years ago since Paul wrote, and so we have a time indicator in the voice. He's coming to you soon. So we're like, that doesn't apply to us, okay? That was soon. That's soon in the first century. That's not soon anymore. We don't think about that. All right, look at, some other words Paul writes to the church in chapter 4. He says, I entreat Yodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, is this to us? No, Yodia and Syntyche, they're dead. They had some problems, but they don't have problems anymore, Okay. Clement is dead also. This was specific to the location that took people that were there. But here, what might apply to us from this text is the principle that Yahweh wants unity in His church. That's taught all through the New Testament. So we could say, well, that's the principle that's coming there. We know Yodi and Syntyche are gone, but there's a principle there of unity. All right, how about another verse that people pull out of context all the time? Verse 13, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. I see this verse all over the place too, right? They pull it out. Does it apply to us? All right, now listen carefully here. While Paul is clearly talking about himself, that's he's saying, I can do all things through Christ. This principle applies to us if 
we are abiding in Christ. Not all Christians can claim this. All right, this is not a, I'm a Christian, so I can do everything. No. If you're abiding in Christ, this applies to you. Most of the teaching, I think, that we find in the New Testament is directed to the church universal, but in a local assembly. So that universal stuff applies to us. This verse is usually removed from context. And so we have to ask, well, can you really do all things in Christ? I mean, can I leap tall buildings at a single bound? Can I run faster than a speeding bullet? No. Okay. Again, context. All right. I remember studying through Philippians, and that's when I came across this verse in context. It's one of my favorite verses. Okay. Because, hey, I can do all things through Christ. And then you put it in context, and it's like, whoa. That guy has a whole different meaning when you put it there. So let's back up a little bit. And Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Oh, that's pretty cool. How many of us can say that? I've learned in every situation. And Paul's serious by every situation. Okay, whether he's being beaten in Philippi and put into a prison, he's still praising God. He's content. All right. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. The secret of what? I can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And Paul says, here's what he's saying, put me in any situation and I'm okay with it. Why? Oh, then he tells us, because I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me? It's because with Christ with me, I can deal with the situations of life. That's basically what he's saying here. The secret of being content in any situation is knowing that through Christ, you'll have the strength to live through that, to get through it. If, again, you're depending on Christ. This is a spiritual truth that I believe applies to all believers who are abiding in Christ. If you're abiding in Christ, you can do all things. You can suffer hunger. You can suffer loss. You can go through any kind of situation because it's Christ who strengthens you. We've seen people throughout history of the Christian church who fleshed out this verse. Okay? They've been in the worst circumstances, and they're okay in it. Because Christ strengthens us when we're walking in fellowship with Him. But believers, although we can apply these spiritual truths that are given to the church to ourselves, the time and audience-specific events are not for us. So we have to make some determination, I guess, as we're reading. Let me just add here that there, there are some full preterists who push the audience relevance principle, it's written to them, not to us, to a hyper-position. In other words, they present the Bible as being merely history, and it lacks any present-day application to the believer. It's not written to us. That's taking a principle and pushing it to the nth degree. Okay, well, that's written to the Thessalonians, so it can't apply to us. Really? The Thessalonians are a church. Paul's writing to a church, so the church, all the church can benefit from these things and learn and grow from these things. All right? Now, let me just be clear here that this full preterist does not believe the Bible is just history and lacks present-day application. I surely would not be constantly encouraging you to read the Bible if I didn't think it was relevant. And by the way, how you doing in this year's reading? Okay, we're 15 days in, you're doing okay, you're keeping up, all right, you know, very important. Let me tell you, the more you read through that Bible, 
the more you're going to understand God, the closer you're going to be able to walk with Him. It's just super important, people. You want to know God? Spend some time with Him, all right? But to say that I do believe the Bible is written to a certain audience, and we're not that audience. So we must first seek to understand what it meant to them so we can see how it applies to us. From my perspective, though, unless I have strong reason not to apply the principles of the New Testament to believers today. For example, um, I think that we... Okay, let me say that again. From my perspective, I want to apply the principles of the Word of God to me, unless I have some strong evidence that it's not to me, okay? Because I think a lot of the Scripture applies to us today, and that it's, again, it's addressed to the church. We're the church. For example, I, I think that we're called to walk worthy. Paul told the Ephesians that. Well, that doesn't mean just the Ephesians he wanted to walk worthy. He wanted Christians to walk worthy. So I think that's important to us. I think we are to be humble. And that's through the Tanakh. That's through the New Testament. Many of the churches. I think, as 1 John writes, which was a universal letter, written to a circuit of churches, a whole bunch of them, so it's written to the universal church, we're to love one another. And I also think we're to put others before ourselves. That's a strange idea. But the Bible talks about that. Okay? My wife had a conversation with a woman, a Christian woman, who said, I don't believe that doctrine about putting others before yourself. And I'm just thinking, it's just a Bible verse, okay? <laughs> what do you mean you don't believe that doctrine? We're, we as Christians are to put others before ourselves. That's what we're supposed to do. But if you don't like it, you just say, I don't reject that doctrine. And then you go on with your life, all right? So to me, these things apply to the universal church, and they are therefore timeless. But there is much in the New Testament that doesn't apply to us because we don't live in the transition period. And we understand the transition period, we will understand that we are living in what they call the age to come, and that many of the transition period problems, they just don't apply to us. It's only when we know what time it is that we can know how the Bible is relevant to us. We're not looking for things that already happened. We're not trying to hold on to things that are past. Okay, so again, that question was asked by somebody. I think just because the, the church here, he's writing to the church, that made me think of that. And I wanted to bring it up because I think it's important, people. That's the greatest question someone could ask. What, what, what's for me? What's for me? Involves a little work, a little thought process sometimes. But all right, back to our text. Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, ref to refer to the church as in God rather than the church of God is unusual in the writings of Paul. And we should probably understand this in the same way that Paul talks a lot about being in Christ. It means that we are identified completely with Him. Usually Paul will address the saints and the churches in terms of where they live. To the church of God that is in Corinth. See here, it's the church of God and they're at Corinth. Here, it's the church of Thessalonians that are in God. Alright, why the difference? I think that Paul is emphasizing the fact that this church, which happens to be under great persecution is in union with God. And he's trying to let them know that. The church at Thess Thessalonica was going under per steep persecutions, and the sphere of their protection they had to keep in mind was their union with God. 
They are living in union with the creator of the universe. Again, you understand the sovereignty of God. You know, hey, I'm at peace, whatever situation I'm in, because God's in control. Now, he says, in God the Father and Lord Yeshua the Christ. God the Father here and Yeshua are combined in a syntactical way by using one preposition to identify them both. And this is one technique used by New Testament authors to theologically assert the deity of Christ. Okay? That's what they're doing here. They're connecting Him. Alright? God the Father and they're equal. That's what the author's trying to say. Now, another way that they used to establish the deity of Christ uh, was titles that they used in the Tanakh and functions of Yahweh, and they applied those to Yeshua of Nazareth. Okay, so God was called this, now Yeshua's called this. They're trying to emphasize the deity of Christ. To call Yeshua Lord focuses attention on what the Savior is to all believers who are in Him. As Lord, which is kurios, Yeshua is Yahweh, the supreme creator and sustainer of the universe. We see that in John 1.1. We saw that in our study of John. Kurios is the Septuagint representation of the Hebrew yod vav Yahweh. Alright? So in the New Testament, when you see kurios, that in the Septuagint would be Yahweh, and it shows that Paul had already taught these believers, both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, about the deity of Christ. And people, this is just fundamental. He had to teach them about the deity of Christ, because you don't know Christ if you don't know He's God. And then later we'll get into verse 5 and 6. He mentions the Holy Spirit there. So in the short time that he's with these new believers, he had grounded them in the doctrine of the Trinity, including the deity of Christ. Okay? Whenever someone says, I don't believe in the deity of Christ, I realize two things. They don't know God, and they don't know their Bible. Simple as that. I'm not trying to be rough i'm not trying to be rude but listen christ says unless you believe that i am you will die in your sins so if you don't understand who he is you're dead in your trespasses and sins the teaching of the lord's deity is fundamental and it's everywhere in scripture for example luke 19 10 for the son of man came to seek and save the lost yeshua is here proclaiming his deity (laughs) do you see it Anybody see it? Huh? Well, this is actually a quote from Ezekiel, okay? So here's the thing, and again, another pitch to read your Bible. When you're reading your Bible every year, every year, every year, and then you're reading through Ezekiel and you say, oh, wow, Yeshua said that in the New Testament. And you start putting these things together because you're familiar with the Scripture. Ezekiel says, for thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I, I myself, We'll search for my sheep and we'll seek them out. So Yahweh's saying here, I'm going to seek the sheep. Okay? Verse 34, 15 and 16. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost. Okay? Who's saying this? Yahweh? I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. That is... Physical salvation, okay, he's delivering. And the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. 
So Yahweh says, I'm going to seek the lost. Yeshua says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. By using this phrase, and okay, think about Yeshua's crowd. They're people who understand the Scriptures. At this time, most Jewish boys, by the time they were 12, had the Torah memorized, and much of the Tanakh. So these guys are people who know the Bible. They hear him say this, and they're, wait a minute. That's what Yahweh said. Yeah, he's saying, you're catching on, okay? David Flusher, who was a devout Orthodox Jew, he was a professor of early Christianity and Judaism of the Second Temple period at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Flusher said this, you poor Christians, you wonder why the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God more often. It says it all the time. You just don't understand Jewish thought. That is so true. We don't understand, so we miss all these illusions. Let me give you an example of what Flusher's talking about here. Revelation 1.18. I am Alpha and Omega. I really doubt Yeshua said that. Because I think he would have used the Aleph Tav instead of the Greek letters, Alpha and Omega. He's Hebrew, the Aleph Tav. Says the Lord God, who is, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here Yeshua is saying, I am from eternity to eternity. And the Jews would express the whole compass of things by the Aleph Tav, first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So if we go back to Isaiah, we read this. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Now in light of Isaiah, Yeshua was clearly claiming to be Yahweh of hosts, the only living and true God. People, The Bible is so clear. Yeshua is Yahweh, the second person of the triune God. Okay, you got that. Let's move on. Paul is telling the suffering Thessalonians that they are in union with this God. Yeshua and the Spirit, the Father, they're in union with the triune God. Paul talks a lot about the importance of the union in Christ in his writings because when we understand that we are in union with God, we understand all that we have in Him. In 1 Corinthians one twenty nine to 30 he says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God doesn't want people boasting in His presence, okay? And he says, Because of Him, you are in Christ Yeshua, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now notice that it is God who creates the union because of Him. Literally, from Him, you're in Yeshua. In other words, God creates this union by His grace, and we embrace it by faith. Now, the importance of this union is if you're in Christ, by God's doing, Christ becomes for you the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. All that Christ is and has, we are and have by virtue of union with Him. I mean, if you understand the union you have with Christ, you are at peace because nothing's going to happen to you because you're in Christ. That's your position before God. An unchangeable position. Union is so important. Paul talks a lot about this through his letters to the church that we are a part of. So we're in union with Christ. Now, the epistolatory salutation ends with a blessing. He says, grace to you and peace. Now, In his greetings of grace and peace, Paul gives what the Jewish 
Christians would have recognized as an echo from the ancient Aaronic blessing. All right? Let me take you back there and show you this. I think that Paul had to have this in mind, although it's an illusion. It's not a quote. Number 6, 24-27 says, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. It's known as the ironic blessing, but you've got grace, you've got peace. This is so familiar. Now, grace is from the Greek haris. It's a variation from the normal Greek greeting would have been rejoice. But people, we have to understand the heart of the gospel is that God's grace or His unmerited favor is extended to sinners. Because Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, God's holy justice is satisfied. Grace always precedes peace. Okay? Then he says peace. And this is the Greek, Irene, which is the normal Hebrew greeting, which would be shalom. But we have peace with God because He is gracious to us. Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been justified, we're right with God, therefore we have peace through the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now Paul's addressing believers here. He's talking to the family of God. And he says, since we have been, the Greek here uses the aorist passive, having been justified. The aorist points to the past act by God. It's a divine passive to declare sinners righteous. He says, since we have been justified. That indicates that God has already accomplished His work. He's writing to Christians, so he says, we've been justified. It's a past action. And because of that, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. What does peace with God mean? It means the war is over. It means no longer enemies, as the song we sing says, we're seated at his table. We're having table fellowship with Yahweh because he loves us. God is no longer our enemy, no longer promising judgment and death. Peace with God is a new status between God and the believer, which flows from the reconciliation that Christ accomplished. By virtue of Christ's death on the cross, He has made it possible for men who were separated from God to become friends, to have peace with God. Peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the Messianic kingdom that's anticipated in the Tanakh and fulfilled in the New Testament. And biblically speaking, peace is always the product of knowing and appropriating the grace of God. This order can never be reversed. You ignore the grace of God, you forfeit the peace of God. But let me try to push this home a little more, believers. I think the more we grasp and experience the grace of God, and you, I hope you understand the grace of God is a growing thing. You know, Some Christians understand, yeah, I was saved by grace, but the more you understand God's grace, the more capacity you have to experience the peace of God. Grow in grace and you will grow in peace. You will have the peace of God because you understand the grace of God. William Barclay, who is a neo-Orthodox, uh, you know, you got to be careful. Barclay is an excellent historian. Okay, theologian, he stinks as a theologian. But he said this, I thought it was pretty cool. When Paul took and put together these two words, grace and peace, 
Haras and Irene, he was doing something very wonderful. He was taking the normal greeting phrases of two great nations and molding them into one. I kind of like that, you know. He's taking the, the Gentile grace and he's taking the shalom from the Hebrews and he's saying grace and peace. Because it's a mixed group, people. All right, after Paul's salutation, his first sentence goes from verse 2 to 5. But we're not going to cover that, so relax, okay? Just a short time left in two, and we'll be done with this, all right? But there's something else that's really unique about Paul's greeting here. It's very, very long. His greeting is three chapters long, okay? It's not till chapter 4 that he begins to exhort the Thessalonians. This is the only letter of Paul in which the introductory thanksgiving is not limited to the opening paragraph and spans for three chapters. That's how he is thankful for these people, okay? He loves these people. He's encouraged by these people. And he's just trying to encourage them even more. In verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. All right, the we here is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul used the plural pronoun we more often in 1 Thessalonians than in any other letter. Now, here's the question. It's uncertain how this affected the process of writing the book. Did they all write? Did Timothy say, hey, I got something I want to say to him. Let me, let me put a couple sentences in there. And Silas, let me, let me say this. Or were they just, you know, secretaries for Paul and wrote this stuff down? And exactly how much freedom did these scribes have if they are scribes? Because they say, oh yeah, Paul said, let me add something here. We don't know. Okay? We really don't. We know this book is inspired by God, and these men are claiming that we are writing this to you. Whether they talked about it and Paul wrote it down, or Paul dictated, we don't know. There's a lot we don't know, but we know that the book we have is inspired by God. God put in there what He wanted, He gave us what He wanted us to have. He says, we give thanks to God. This is a present, active, indicative, indicating continuous action. We're always giving thanks to God for you. A spirit of thanksgiving characterizes this whole letter. Paul had a great relationship with this church, just like he did with Philippi. Amazing relationship. Now, I think as believers, we have a duty to be grateful to God. And again, the more you understand the grace of God, I think the more thankful you will be for what you have. I saw recently, read something that said, what if the things you weren't thankful for today, you didn't have tomorrow? And that made me smile because I'm like, I wouldn't miss much because I, I, every day in my prayer life, I'm thanking God for so many things. Because I just, I mean, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude for what the Lord has done. And the more we understand our redemption, the more we understand grace, I think the more we'll lift up our voices and just praise to God. And our prayer life will be so filled with this. Now, let me ask you a question here that kind of throws me a little loop here. Paul says, we give thanks to God. Why does he give God thanks rather than saying, we commend you Thessalonians for the wise choice of believing in Christ? Shouldn't he be thanking them that they were smart enough to believe? We'll talk about that next time. Okay, Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. This is a present active participle. It shows Paul's intense abiding concern for these believers. He's just constantly praying. Now, constantly here is hyperbole. Okay, the writers of Scripture use hyperbole. 
if you get to the point where you're taking everything into wooden literalism, you're going to be, okay, Paul couldn't do anything else. Because that's all he was doing was praying for the Thessalonians. Well, he says he prays for other churches too, so... You know, obviously Paul didn't mean that he spent all his time praying. He prayed for them continually, though, all right? And believers, I think prayer is something that we should be more involved in. And I think we're not as involved as we should be in it because we don't get the answers we want, so we're just like, that doesn't work, okay? Look what Paul said to the Colossians. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Do you think that's just specific to the... Colossians, or is it to the church? Are believers supposed to be in prayer? Being watchful with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly here is from the Greek word proskertereo, which calls attention to something that is regular, it's loved, it's prioritized. It implies that you are busily engaged in something, you're persisting in it with regularity. Now, every time we talk about prayer, I tell you this, prayer is a declaration of our dependence upon God. And this is why you should pray. You say, I don't get an answer. This is why you should pray. When you pray, you're saying, God, I need you. Okay? That's what you're saying. I mean, when you get down and you ask God, you're saying, God, I need you. We ask forgiveness. Why? Because we're dependent upon Him to forgive. We thank Him in prayer because we know that whatever we have comes from His hand. We petition Him because only He can give us what we really need. We know that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And you know what? Prayer is humility in action. It's just humbling yourself before God. Say, God, I need you. You know, some people make fun of others because they pray for the smallest things. I don't have a problem with that at all. You know, if you want to show your dependence upon God for everything, we are dependent upon Him for everything, okay? When you pray, you're saying, God, I can't do this. I come to you to acknowledge my need. Does your prayer life declare that you are dependent upon Him for everything? Or does your lack of prayer, is it a declaration of your independence? In other words, hey, I don't need you. Watch this. I can do it. Think of your life in that way. Okay, when you pray, you're declaring your dependence. When you don't pray, you're saying, I got this. Where do you want to be? God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. All right? This church at Thessalonica was very young. Like I said, they're, they're six months to a year old. They're brand new Christians. And yet, it is a solid church. It's an example to other churches. They understand doctrine. And as we continue this study, we're going to see why Paul was so thankful for them and hopefully learn in our own lives what a solid church looks like. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I'm getting excited about the Thessalonian Christians, Lord. I, just in the beginning, and I'm already in awe of this very young church being an example to everyone and the amount of doctrine that they knew at such an early stage. Lord, may we learn from this. Teach us, Lord, that we may be the people you've called us to be. Amen.